Hi, everybody. My name is Pat Hogarty, and welcome back to California Real Estate Principles, Real Estate 300. Today happens to be show number 12. And what we're going to be doing today is that uh, I wanted to do sort of like a review of where we've been going along in the chapters. And uh, you're going to be coming up on taking your first midterm exam very shortly. So you're going to want to go into the uh, Blackboard website and check. Remember, I have a button in there that says exam schedules. You're going to want to go in there and check and see when your first exam is going to come up. Uh, remember, in most cases, I'm going to have an, a time that you can come in in the morning and also one in the afternoon. When you do come in, you're going to want to bring, uh, remember, as I've told you before, number two pencil, a Scantron 882. And uh, you're going to want to be here a little bit earlier before uh, class, before the exam starts, because remember, we have a parking issue here on campus. And uh, so you want to have enough time to find a parking space. And second of all, whenever we arrange these rooms, we normally have to get in, have you take the exam, and then get out, because either I'm taking or teaching a class right after that, or in some cases we have instructors that are going to be bringing in a whole bunch of students later on. When you think about it, some of these rooms have fairly large capacities, and we use them for other topics besides just mine. So that's why we want to kind of get in and out. What I'm going to be doing today is I'm going to be going through each of the five chapters that will be on the first midterm exam. And uh, I'm going to be spending probably somewhere in the neighborhood of about maybe 10 minutes at the most on each one of the chapters talking and discussing the different things that we talked about during the course. Uh, if you see something in here that, uh, because it's only 10 minutes, remember it's, this is more or less servicing of hitting the high points. Uh, the other thing is you may very well want to go back and take a look at the actual uh, course lectures to see what uh, was actually covered during that period of time. Or if I touch on something that's unfamiliar to you, you should probably want to go back and read the chapter. One more thing before we get started, I want to remind you that you should have downloaded the, the uh, first midterm exam study guide. Uh, I kind of beat that to death quite a bit, but I think this is really important. I'm trying to not only help you succeed and get an A in the class, but the other thing that I'm really trying to do is to help you come up with some form of a methodology to uh, prepare yourself if you're going to take the state exam. Uh, because when you get ready to take the state exam, a lot of people will sit down and take a whole bunch of tests. They'll go back and they'll check their answers to see what they got right or wrong, and they usually are not peaking during that period of time. And then what they'll do is that areas where they feel that they either guessed it and maybe got it right or they knew nothing about the subject material, hopefully that exam will direct you back into what area of the book or the chapter that you need to look at to refresh your memory. Remember, when we all take any kind of a class, like in the case of real estate, we all come here with different kinds of backgrounds. You may have very well, uh, maybe have worked in a bank, you're very familiar with finance, but on the other hand, when we're talking about legal descriptions, maybe that's some area you've never heard about. Or on the other hand, maybe you've worked for a title insurance company and you are familiar with legal descriptions, but something uh, such as uh, finance or appraisal is an area that you don't know. And I'm just picking topical areas, not necessarily what's covered on this particular exam. So anyway, what I'm going to be doing, what you're going to want to do while I'm talking about this is get, get your old book out. And what I'm going to be doing is using the table of contents in the front of the book as kind of like a review for me to, kind of like a little trigger for me to make sure that I'm mentioning things. So you may want to pull that out, take a look at it, maybe write a note or two down next to it so that you're familiar with what uh, we're going to be talking about. So what I've done over here, and I'm going to be back and forth between talking to you 
face-to-face. And uh, also on the document camera, I'll just go over here probably to pick up a subject and come right back to the, do- you know, face-to-face the document camera and actually uh, uh, and talk to you about the topical area. So anyway, I'm going to move over here to the uh, my old friendly document camera. And again, this happens to be uh, the table of contents. I wanted to use something that was familiar to you. This is the introduction to real estate. This happens to be chapter one. So I'm going to mention a couple things, and then we're going to move on. Uh, First of all, we did talk about California real estate market. We talked about the fact that the Department of Real Estate, if you remember, governs licensing. Uh, In other words, uh, who can get a license? It governs the exams. It's the one that you submit your applications to, the one that you... um, that you have to uh, have that application approved in order for you to get a real estate license. Uh, we did talk about the fact that the real estate is fairly costly here in California, and I think during uh, maybe during the time that we talked about uh, you know the high cost of real estate, I pointed out some of the high cost areas such as San Francisco, Los Angeles uh, area, but that in other parts of the country that real estate is not as expensive as it is here in Sacramento. So just so that you know about, we also talked about real estate as a profitable profession, and I may or may not have mentioned the fact that what you want to do is that if you are going to go into it as a sales or a broker or mortgage person where you're working on some form of a commission, remember that, uh, that uh, you're really entering your own business and you have to think about it like a business. Okay, so it's very important. And then we moved down. We talked a little bit about the history of California, and then we talked about real property in general. And what I'm going to do is come back up here and just talk to you a little bit about this. Um, What we really want to do is we want to emphasize the fact of what is real property and what is personal property. And I think... The reason why you want to know that, not only as an individual owner or purchaser of property, but also as a real estate professional, is so that you have a way of recognizing the difference of what is actually real property and what is personal property. I'm going to take a minute to talk about that. Real property, as it talks about in your outline, is anything that's land, the pure land itself. And then anything that's attached to it. And when we talk about attached, we mean buildings, outbuildings. We're talking about fences. We're talking about pools. We're talking about all those kinds of things that are permanently attached. Permanently to me and to real estate means the fact that it's not easy that you can just go out and pick it up, fold it up, and take it away. For example, uh, personal property in your backyard might be something like a picnic table, something you can fold up and take away. Okay, that's personal property. Real property would be something where you would bolt it down to the ground. It would be immovable by its very nature. Your intention of it was that it was supposed to stay there and be real property. And if you took it up, there would be great big holes there where the bolts used to hold it down to the ground. So we want to understand that's what's real property. Fencing, retaining walls, things like that. Cabinets on the inside of the house, it would be things like cabinets that you happen to have bolted to the wall, uh, things like the oven there, uh, would be an example, a built-in oven or a built-in range would be an example. All of those things happen to be uh, carpeting that's put in, that's tightened down and, and, and stapled to the floor. That's real part of real property. Conversely, personal property would be things that you could possibly take with you, and that would be things such as furniture, 
you may have something like a refrigerator. That would be personal property. If you're in a garage or talking about the things that are, might be in your garage, things like saws, tools, things along that line would be personal property. The reason why this becomes important, though, as I mentioned during the lecture, uh, during that lecture, is that when you start and you're walking through the property with your client, getting ready to list the property to sell it, or you are getting ready to show a property to a buyer for them to buy it, what you want to do is be able to make sure that you distinguish what is staying with the property and what is not. As an example, if you are listing the property, in other words, the client that owns the property is asking you to be the one that's going to market the home, put it in the MLS system, hold open houses. In other words, you're their listing agent. You're going to want to walk with your client through room through room and ask questions like, do the drapes stay? Do the cabinets stay? Does that refrigerator, does that go or does it stay? The reason why you want to know this, and there are checklists also in the listing agreement to make sure that it kind of, you know, sort of, I wouldn't say bug you, but triggers the fact you should ask this question, is because you don't want to have the buyers move into the house only to find out that the refrigerator or the drapes that they thought were going to stay, and the reason why they bought the house, the, your, your people that are selling it thought that it was a good idea to take it with them. So you want to make sure you understand. It's very, very important that you do that. There's been many, many times that I've seen where people have moved into a house or get ready to move in and find out all the drapes are missing or, or the refrigerator is missing or something else and not realizing that that was considered by the selling person or the per, per person that owned it that was selling it, they thought that was personal pro or was real, was personal property and they could take it with them. The next thing that we talked about in chapter one was something called methods of legal descriptions. This becomes very, very important that you understand how to read, at least read, a legal description. And we talked about the fact that there are three different kinds. There's a meets and bounds description, which I emphasize the fact is like as if somebody had given you a set of directions, and those directions were, uh, were how you could walk around the perimeter or the outside of the property. And when you walked completely around following those instructions, you had just essentially put, walked around and fenced off or identified the boundaries of the property. Where you find those legal descriptions, again, are usually in much older properties, properties that maybe haven't been surveyed for many years. Uh, I stress the fact that, and I think your book did too, that if you have a client that has a legal description, that possibly is old, you probably want to talk to them about its accuracy and how, how when it was last surveyed. Uh, as I used as an example, some of those surveys that were done, they used things as, as monuments. Some of the monuments they used were like walls, stone walls that maybe have fallen down or moved, trees that fell down, rivers that dried up. And what you do is you find out that they're not accurate anymore. And so that's one of the things that you really want to do. And by the way, some people will say, well, how do I find out what these legal descriptions are? So there's two ways that you can do it very easily. Probably the best way is before you ever, ever, ever go out to list a property for sale is to go and contact a local title insurance company such as First American Chicago Title for, uh, uh, financial title and ask and ask to talk to their customer service department and ask them for something called a property profile. Sometimes it's referred to as, as a for sale by owner package. 
And specifically, if you get, get that, which will be free, won't cost you any money, we'll give you a copy of the grant deed, the deed of trust, a plat map that will show you, how, you know, the dimensions of the property. And you're going to want to make sure that's clear. You may have to go back and take a look at that and say, could you make a better, clearer picture of that for me? And you're going to want to take a look at that and make sure that you understand exactly what that legal description is before you ever go out and, and list the property for sale with a client. Because probably, in many cases, you're going to be going out and walking around the property. You want to know where the boundaries are. Second kind we talked about was something called a um, government survey. We talked about the fact that the United States, when they started to acquire property on the western part, or U.S. Does, uh, started to acquire property on the western part of the United States, as we call it today, we had to have some way of legally describing it, and we talked about that there was a grid system. You know, there was a vertical line and a horizontal line. The horizontal was called the baseline. The vertical line was called the meridian. And in your book, this is a way that we can survey the property, and these there's monuments that are physically located in three locations throughout California with precise locations that we can measure from that point to figure out where the property is located. Again, a lot of those descriptions would be fairly large pieces of property, uh, usually in the 20, 30, 40 acres, although you could have a smaller piece of property that might be, you know, two, two acres or one acre. But anyway, that's another kind of a legal description. And again, you want to prepare yourself for that when you're meeting with the client. You may actually want to, you know, for example, go out and, and get a property profile, sit down, take a look at it, and then maybe, if necessary, talk to the title officer at the title company or the escrow officer and get some guidance before you go out so you understand what's really going on. The last one we talked about was the uh, lot block. That concept was that uh, that's typically uh, revolving around a subdivision. It's where we've hired a licensed civil engineer or uh, land surveyor to go out and actually uh, survey the property, and they have actually, as a result of that uh, and all of their efforts, created a map of that property which divided that, that property into lots. And so, again, that is the most common kind of a lot description. For example, it might say something like uh, lot 25 of uh, um, lot 25 of uh, the Pat Hogarty subdivision unit number two. Okay, so remember that, and that lot will actually have, when you look at that map, will have all the dimensions of the lot. So you're going to want to know which one of those are and make sure you're familiar with what it is before you ever go out and, and uh, if you will, visit with the client. If you're working with a buyer, you're going to want to make darn sure that you're not showing the buyer a piece of property only to find out it's not the one that you're looking at, it's the one that's behind you, or you got the wrong lot or the wrong size of the property or the fence is located in the wrong area. Very, very important. We finally, uh, I think that was it for basically Chapter 1. Okay. The next thing we moved into was Chapter 2. And in Chapter 2, we talked about three different areas. We talked about estates which essentially is what is it that you actually own. We talked about transfers. How do you change the property from one person to the other or one company or entity to the other? And then the third was title. How, do, how does your name appear on the deed? So under estates, we talked about different types of estates. And we said that when it first began, when we first started to sell property and legally describe that property, what we did is we owned, the person that owned it, owned all the way from the center of the earth all the way out to outer space. Okay, they owned the entire property. That was typically what we call fee simple absolute. 
Now, over a period of time, we had where maybe we may have a few less rights, if you will, and we discussed during that period of time, I showed you a copy of a grant deed, where in that particular case, the person owned the property, but they only owned the property from the surface down to the first 500 feet. After that, the mineral rights were owned by somebody else, or in this case, I think the new owner owned 50% and the old owner owned 50%. And when we talked about mineral rights, we're talking about things like oil, gas, silver, copper, any kind of mineral in that sense. So in other words, you don't necessarily own anymore from the center of the earth all the way out to outer space. Also, I think I talked during that period of time that in certain cities or towns, you can have where you have different types of ownership if you go up. For example, if you go even in the downtown Sacramento area, you'll see some of the buildings nowadays where, you know, the base part of the building might be owned by one owner, and then you may have condominium units as you go up the building. So, in other words, you can have different forms of ownership interest in one physical-looking structure, okay? So, the other thing that we talked about during that period of time is we talked about estates that were less, let me see if we can do we talked about estates that you may get that may have some conditions tied to them. We call, talked about that as estates, uh, conditions that restrict fee estate. And uh, what we were talking about there is that you may very well run into a property in which the person has a fee estate, for example, but they have some conditions that limit when and how they can use it. And we talked about... For example, we said, I, I could decide that I wanted to either sell or give some property to Sacramento City College. And what would happen is, is that the condition I would give it to them or sell it to them would be the fact that they would build, for example, a Pat Hogarty College on it, a College of Business, for example. Now, one of the things I could do is say, I'm going to have a condition precedent, which means that I am not going to give you or sell you that property until you agree to do that. If you don't agree to do that, I'm not going to transfer that property to you. We also had the other kind of, uh, of uh, where you're deeding something to somebody, where you deed the property to them, and they have a period of time in which they have to meet those conditions. So, for example, I could say, I will sell you the property to Sacramento City College, but you must start construction on this Pat Hogarty College at the, end, at the beginning of the 10th year and be done by the end of the 12th year. If you don't do that, the property reverts back to me. Okay? So you want to be aware of that, I think, when you're listing property for sale. You want, that's all part of the legal description or part that you're going to be looking for to make sure you know, what kind of ownership this person has. The other kind of ownership that we talked about is something called a life estate. And a life estate was, uh, and I'll kind of point out here where that is, a life estate was an estate in which somebody is going to go ahead and essentially give you the property or give somebody the property. They can live in the property. They can use it. They can enjoy it. They can paint it. They can fix it up. They can do lease it out. They can do whatever they want with it as long as somebody is alive. Now, a lot of times people will say, well, it's as long as the person that's going to live there is alive. No, it could be based on somebody else's life. And typically what will happen is I use as an example that uh, you may have where uh, there's a, um, a mother 
for example, that's living in a home. She's gotten to the point where she wants to continue to live there, but she can't take care of things. She talks to her daughter, and her, do- and her daughter agrees to move in and take care of her, you know, for the next number of whatever years, and uh, does a really good job taking care of her. And then what happens is the mother says, you know what, I want to make sure that if anything happens to be that my happens to me that my daughter has the ability to live in this house, which is, by the way, paid off free and clear for the rest of her life. And then after she dies, I'm, I want the property transfer back, transferred back to my estate, or maybe I want the property then to pass on to somebody like, uh, it could be uh, you know, the American Cancer Society, it could be the Sisters of Mercy, or it could be to another person, it could be to a granddaughter. But it's a way for the person that's, al- while they're alive, to figure out how that property is going to be transferred uh, to, you know, to different people uh, versus, say, for example, a will. A will is a different way where you leave the property to somebody and then that prop- person has total control over how it passes to the next individual. So we talked about that and we t- also talked about the fact that it's just part of an estate planning process. There is advantages to doing it that way in the sense that the person that's wa- setting up the life estate for this individual has control over it. The disadvantage to it is that the person that may be living there and using the property ha- may have a difficult time keeping it maintained because they can't, you know, they're going to have a difficult, if not an impossible time, trying to borrow money against the property to fix it up, to maintain it. And I think I mentioned one time I had a student uh, a number of semesters ago that had a very similar situation where the property after the uh, mother died was going to go to three or four or five children. And what happened is some of the kids were concerned about getting the place fixed up, and some of them didn't care. And uh, literally, the house was starting to fall apart around them. So it becomes, it's not necessarily the best method, but it's a way that people will do things. We then talked about something called less than freehold estates, which are in reality rental property or personal property. And so we talked about the fact that you know, this not only applied to uh, a house that you may rent to somebody or a house that you may uh, be renting from someone uh, on a lease agreement, or it could be a rental agreement. Remember, a lease agreement is typically uh, at least probably a year or longer, and it would be in writing, okay? And it would have a definite move-in date and a definite move-out date. A rental agreement, on the other hand, would be something that would be for a shorter period of time. Typically, it could be verbally. And it could be like on a week-to-week, month-to-month uh, basis. And we talked about the, th- the different types of freehold estates. We talked about a, a tenancy for a fixed period of time. We had another one that was, for example, period-to-period, which would be like month-to-month. Another one would, would be an estate at will, which means that either party could decide to terminate the agreement at any time as long as they gave the other party notice. And then we talked in an estate at sufferance, and that's where somebody stays in the property that has legally come into possession of it. In other words, they've, they've signed a lease agreement. They've not come in and been a squatter or anything or just, you know, what they've done is they've legally come into possession of it, but they stay beyond the end of the agreement. And what ends up happening, the example I usually like to use, is it's somebody that has a lease agreement They're going to be there, for example, for a year. They're going to be building a house. They think that the house will be done within that period of time. And then they find out, uh, hey, we had a rainstorm or something like that, which is going to extend the construction of our house for another month or two. And they ask the uh, owner, 
uh, the landlord, can I stay there longer? And the landlord says uh, yes, and then the tenant goes and remits money to the landlord. If the landlord accepts that money, then they have a typically like a month-to-month type of agreement or a period-to-period type of agreement. Okay. Then we talked about how you acquire and transfer properties. We talked about there were different ways that you could do it. Number one, the most common way was where you bought it and you had a deed to the property. And um, that's typically the way whenever we sell property, we, in, we have a grant deed. Grant deed, by the way, remember, has certain warranties in it, so you're going to want to go back and make sure you check on that. Warranties would be things like the person you know, is agreeing that they are the owner of the property, that they haven't transferred it to somebody else, things like that. Remember, there are different other kinds of deeds that you may run into. For example, you may have a trustee's deed. Uh, that would be where the property went into foreclosure and it was sold by a trustee you know, for, uh, at a public auction, if you will, to raise money to go ahead and pay off the existing loan. We could have a sheriff's deed because, uh, for whatever reason, the property was sold to satisfy some sort of judgment or lien on the property. We could have had uh, something like a... Um, a tax deed where the property was sold for taxes. So the kind of the, what I want to talk what I was talking about is that there are a lot of different deeds. The last thing I wanted to mention with deeds is remember in the book talks about something called a quit claim deed. And remember a quit claim deed is not a deed that transfers title. It's a deed that actually removes a cloud from the title. And where it is is where somebody may think where somebody may possibly have some form of ownership in the property and they want to clear it up and make sure that they remove that even that thought of them having an ownership. And what they do is they execute a quick claim deed where they just say, here, I don't care. I have no interest in the property. The property is yours. And then that removes the cloud. Uh, we talked about some other kinds of um, ways that you can transfer property. One was by will. Remember, will is when you die and you leave a will, either a written typed uh, witnessed will or a holographic will, which is one in your own handwriting, saying where you want your property to go. So you could transfer it by will. So when you die, you identify who it's going to go to. Remember that you can also have, when we said transfer by probate, that remember that whenever you leave a will, you need to have somebody to make sure that that's a valid will and that's done in a probate court. The, the judge makes the decision, is the will valid? Is all of the, um, you know, is the people that you want uh, to take care of the property, such as the executor, the right person, and they probate the will. You can have transfer by intestate, which means that you die and you leave no will. And what that essentially means is since you left no instructions, the state of California will follow the law and make decisions on how to distribute your property. We talked about a session, which is just essentially you can have by natural causes, where maybe you have a river that's depositing land on the front of your property, you're acquiring more property, or you could actually have it go away because the river is washing it away. We also had by occupancy, and we talked about where somebody could abandon the property, adverse possession, and that, and remember we had adverse possession, and we also had something called an easement, an easement by prescription. In both of these cases, if you're going to be doing this, this is where you may think that you have, if it's adverse possession, means that you would like to get the title to the property. And you may think that you have a claim on the property, like your uncle died, left the property to you, but left no deed. And there's a set of things that you have to do in order to finally get that property, and you want to do them in the right order, because you have to go to court and finally ask the judge if you can have the property. 
An easement, on the other hand, follows the same thing, but remember the fact that what happens is that in that case, it's a right to go across someone's property to have access to your property. And again, there's a certain set of things that you have to follow, and if you don't follow them, you cannot continue to use the easement or, or, ha or have the easement. So you want to follow that. And then finally, you can have a transfer by dedication. That happens to be where, and you see this a lot with developers, builders, where the county or the city will say, yes, we will allow you to build that subdivision, but here's the circumstance. What you basically have to do is you have to give us some property to build a fire department or a park, something along that way, by, by what we would call by dedication, okay? Uh, then we talked about different ways, different title ownership. And uh, remember that uh, this has been very, very important. This has something that you need to make your client aware of the way that they can hold title to property. They, this is something you don't want to wait until the last minute on the day you're going down to sign the escrow instructions. What you want to do is you want to make sure that you've talked to the client ahead of time, found out how they want to hold title, Again, we talked about that quite extensively during, our, um, during that uh, show. But remember that you really want to be aware of that. There's things like sole ownership where you own it by yourself. You can have joint tenancy with a right of survivorship so that if you own it and you die, it passes to the other remaining people that are on title. Uh, and uh, that there was uh, something called uh, community property in which you're talking about people that are going to own property and their husband and wife. Uh, you talked about tenants in common, and the unique thing about tenants in common is remember that you cannot have your ownership interest can be of a different size. Unlike joint tenants, you could have somebody that has 10% interest, another one has 10% interest, and somebody else has 80% interest. And remember, it's undivided so that you can't go out there and say the pool is mine and the, uh, and the uh, clubhouse is yours. You can't do that. It's, you have an undivided interest. So we talked about how important that was. Finally, the last thing in that chapter we talked about was something called recording and acknowledgement. Remember, probably the most important thing that you want to get out of this is the fact that whenever you have any legal document that you're going to have against a piece of property, like uh, you're going to sell it or you're going to, and people will say, do I, am I legally required to do this? The answer is no. Where you normally have to do this is when you have a lender that's involved and requires you to record these documents. But the interesting thing is, is that a lot of times you'll hear people will maybe sell the property to their son, their daughter, their aunt, their uncle, or whatever within the family, and then find out they lost the deed. Then they have a, a big problem. What I would recommend is that any kind of legal document you're going to do, if you're going to lend money to somebody on property, you're going to sell it, transfer it, whatever you're going to do is record the document. Because by recording it, it tells the public that that exists and also gives you a place that you can go down there and get a copy of it if you ever happen to lose it. So it's a very, very important thing to have, recording the document. And the county requires all documents to be notarized before they're recorded because they're trying to prevent fraud. That's the intention of it. Okay, after we talked about Chapter 2, we jumped over to Chapter, if I remember correctly, Chapter 6. And in Chapter 6, we talked about landlord and tenant, and we've already discussed quite a bit of this already. So I'm just going to kind of touch on what we talked about that was actually coming from Chapter 2, and just to refresh your memory uh, so that you, you know that you need to um, read this. Remember that 
Under landlord-tenant, we're talking about somebody that's renting or leasing a property. Landlord's the person that owns the property. Tenant is the person that's renting it. Remember that we had different, uh, we talked about, and this comes right from Chapter 2, the different types of leasehold interests. We talk about the minimum requirements for a lease or a rental agreement. You know that it has to be in writing. There has to be consideration. We talked about that, so you want to go back and review that. We talked about the rights and obligations of the party and the, for the duration of the lease. Okay. And after that, we talked about different things, such as how we handle things like security deposits. You know, I think I mentioned, I know I mentioned many times that with security deposits, remember, security damage deposits, that if you're the landlord, you're re legally required to give that back to them. If you're going to withhold any money, you need to take and document what that is. You need to provide that uh, information in writing, and I always provide copies of the uh, receipts. So, for example, if somebody moves out of a house I own and I'm going to have the carpeting cleaned, what I'll do is, I'll, and I'm, they say take it out of the cleaning damage deposit, I will do that. I will send them a check back. If the deposit happens to be for $1,000 and the cleaning of the carpet was 300 I will send them a check back for 700 and along with that will be a letter and a copy of the bill from, for example, Stanley Steamer, who cleaned the carpet. Okay, so anyway, we want you want to go back and make sure you're familiar with this. Then we talked about there was a lot of reasons why you could terminate a lease. And we talked about several of them. We talked about that the most common is that the lease or the rental agreement comes to the normal end and everybody's happy and they move out and there's no problems. The second way is where you have a lack of quiet possession where, in other words, the tenant, for whatever reason, the landlord uh, is not uh, is pestering or bothering the person. Remember, whenever you rent property or lease property to somebody, during that period of time, once you've come to that agreement, that's their home. You can't walk in and just check on anything whenever you want. You need to make sure you have their permission. You, you let them know in advance. It's very, very important that you do that. That's their home. The next thing is, is we talked about something called you can terminate it because for habitability. What it means is that there are certain things that the tenant is, has an expectation that's going to be kept up to date. And, that, and by the way, that remember when we talked about that, there's a tenant side or a landlord side and a tenant side. So, for example, the, on the landlord side, there's an expectation that the landlord's going to provide plumbing and heating and air conditioning and keep the place clean and not have the roof leak and things like that. On the other hand, so if he's not doing those things, there's a possibility that lease or rental agreement can be terminated. On the other hand, there's an expectation that the tenant is going to do things like keep the place clean, not throw garbage in the hallways, not destroy the property. If they bring somebody over and they do have any destruction or damage they've done, they're responsible for it. So remember, we have a two-party side here, and either side can terminate it if they're not both living up to their part of that, of that agreement. Also remember that we can have where we terminate somebody due to what we call an eviction, and that eviction can be because of the person maybe hasn't been paying rent, hasn't been keeping the place up, hasn't been taking care of it, has violated one part of the rental or lease agreement, such as maybe they're, they're supposed to only be living there, but they, they're using it for a motorcycle repair shop uh, or some other thing. In other words, if they violate part of that agreement, that could be a cause to terminate that agreement. Uh, and and uh, by law, uh, eviction means that where in that case is where the tenant has done something 
and they're not responding to correcting their actions, such as paying the rent by the landlord, so the landlord has to go through a legal process to have them legally evicted. Uh, we also have where they can surrender or abandon it, just say, I don't want it anymore. You know, I'm, you know, I can't afford to live here anymore. I abandoned it. That's another way you can terminate it. You can have breach of conditions, which we already talked about. Remember, you're signing a legal agreement where you're agreeing to do certain things, pay rent on time, take the, keep the place in good condition. If all those conditions are not met, that's at grounds to terminate the agreement. And then finally, due to destruction of the premises. So, for example, if we have a house that caught on fire and burned to the ground, that would be a reason to terminate the lease or the rental agreement. Uh, again, there's probably, if you will, gradations of damage. So, for example, if maybe there was a storm and a window got broken out and the landlord can fix it right away, that would not mean that you would terminate for that reason. On the other hand, if a tree fell on top of the house, put a great big hole in the roof, the rain's pouring on the inside, that could possibly be a place where you would say, we're going to just terminate the lease, we'll move out, get another place to live, and the landlord will come in and fix it. So it's always based on the circumstances and the intentions of the parties, I would think. We talked about special types of leases, remember? These were leases that you want to be aware of that you're going to see more in the commercial area than you will in the residential area. You have a sale lease back, which is where somebody wants a specially designed building the way I think about it, such as a home depot. They decide to build the building to meet their needs. They realize after they build it or even before they build it that what they need to do is they need to get their money back out of it again. They find somebody that has as an investor. The investor is looking for a place that they're going to get a good, solid, steady stream of income from a good, solid tenant, and they buy it and lease it back to the, to the landlord. The benefit to that is that the tenant gets their money out. The landlord gets a good, solid tenant that's going to be paying maybe rent for the next uh, 10 to 15 years. You can lease with a purchased option, which means you can lease the property for a period of time and then have the option that you've negotiated ahead of time with the landlord that you have the ability to buy the property, say, within the next year, two years, or whatever, at a predetermined price and a predetermined set of circumstances. You can have a ground lease. I used a ground lease in two different examples. One was where you have, like, a, um, uh, you're, a, you're a dentist downtown. You find out that your practice has expanded. You need more space, more parking space for your, for your patients. You go across the street or next door and talk to the owner of the property and ask them if you could work out some kind of a deal where you could rent their parking lot or rent their space for a parking lot. That would be one. You could also have a ground lease where you're leasing the property for a very, very long term and then turning around and building a building on it. And you may, may be approaching it that way because you feel that the building will run out of its economic use after maybe 25 or 30 years. So at the end of that time, maybe your intention is to you know, give the building and the property back to the owner or maybe take the building down. We talked about a graduated lease. That's where you're going to move into the property, have the rent maybe at a certain amount. This might be an incentive. You see this a lot uh, of times when you're trying to rent property out to people and the market's a little bit soft in the rental area. What they'll do is they may give the, uh, the tenant the ability to rent the property say for $1,000 a month for the first year and then after that they may have a predetermined agreement or based on some kind of an index that they're going to raise the rent, you know, every year after that. Okay, so graduated or stair step. We also had something called a net lease. Remember a net lease? Uh, we talked. I think we talked about a gross lease. A gross lease is something like you usually have on your home or your apartment. 
You pay a certain amount of money to the landlord. The landlord takes care of everything, takes care of cutting the lawns, takes care of, you know, uh, if it's an apartment, cleaning the pool, doing all of that work. All you're responsible for is paying that rent monthly rental agreement and on top of that maybe your telephone bill or your lighting bill. On the other hand, in the commercial area, you'll see something called a net lease. A net lease is where, and they usually refer to it as a triple net, that's where somebody rents the property, pays the owner or the landlord a certain amount of money per month, but in addition to that will pay the property taxes, say the insurance, and repair work that needs to be done on the building. Okay, So that's a different kind. If you look in the Sacramento B, you'll see property listed for, for lease. That'll be what we call triple net lease. And I think the last one in that area was something called the percentage lease rentals, uh, retail sales. Typically where you run into that is where you see that uh, in shopping centers, uh, even small ones where you may see like a rallies is the anchor for the, for the shopping center where the person that owns that shopping center will do things to help generate traffic for all of the tenants, such as they may have things like uh, really good signage. Uh, they may put get all the owners together a couple times a year and have some kind of a big sale. Uh, you see that a lot in shopping malls, like a Sunrise Mall or a uh, Arden Fair Mall. And the whole idea of it is that if the landlord works hard to keep the whole entire property up to you know, up to date and clean and tidy and neat, and maybe and maybe uh, provide some kind of incentives for shoppers to come in and buy. If they do that, that's a way that the landlord can not only the, do the tenants benefit from that, but the landlord would benefit because if he or she does that, and each one of those tenants earns more money, then therefore they can earn a percentage of that additional money they would make if that had not been done. So that's another kind of an agreement, if you will. So anyway, we've finished up that. We talked a little bit about professional associations and, and, uh, and real estate management. And then the next thing we did is we went back again to Chapter 3, and we talked about something called encumbrances. And encumbrances, remember, is something that is stopping me from utilizing the property. Something is preventing me from doing having total use or total ability to transfer the property of some way. And remember, there are different, two different types of encumbrances. There are encumbrances that are money-driven encumbrances. In other words, not physical encumbrances, but money. The other kind is something called physical encumbrances. Now, under the money part, we can have things such as, and I'll give you some examples in here, we can have things like a mortgage or a deed of trust. That is something that we voluntarily agree to. When I get ready to buy a piece of property or to refinance a property or to get a loan out against the property for some other reason, this is a document that I sign that's recorded at the county recorder's office that says I hereby, Pat Hogarty, give permission for, the, for this third party called the trustee to sell this property in the event that I do not make my monthly payments to the bank. Okay, that's voluntary. I did not, nobody forced it upon me. I just voluntarily did it because I wanted the money. Some of the other kinds of liens that you may have are things like property taxes. Property taxes first become a lien before you have to pay them. 
And all you, as I mentioned before, all you have to do is call up the county and say to them, excuse me, I'd like to send you some money for my property taxes. If you don't have a lien or owe some money, they have no place to put it. So first, property taxes become a lien, and then you pay them. Okay, it's kind of like going out to dinner and getting, giving them your MasterCard to pay for your meal, and then you first have to do that activity before you actually have to pay the charge card. Okay. We also talked, we talked about uh, other kinds of liens you may have. One would be something called the mechanics lien. And I know I mentioned, and I think that this is a very, very important area that you want to be aware of. The concept here is that anybody that has provided services, such as it can be somebody that's a carpenter, electrician, a backhoe operator, uh, a painter, uh, a muralist, anybody that does any kind of physical services activities on your property has the right, if you don't pay them, to file a mechanics lien, which means that now you have to either address that lien and pay it or go to court and explain why you, you shouldn't have that lien. And typically these liens get filed because the owner has not made payment and in some cases, the reason why the owner has not made payment is because there's a d disagreement between them and the contractor regarding what in the world uh, the quality of the work would be. For example, you wanted to have a roof put on the house. The roof that was put on didn't have the right color shingles, or you thought it was going to be a different quality, or something along that, and, and, or, and, or you thought it was going to be done in a certain period of time, and the, and the contractor didn't do it, and you want to pay them less. And the contractor says, no, you're going to pay me the whole amount, and you get in an argument, they file a mechanics lien. Um, you can have that also for materials. So if you uh, are getting the money or getting materials from the building supply company, your lumber, your, your roof tile, all that kind of stuff, that stuff, they can also file a mechanics lien. Uh, very, very important, though. Mechanics lien laws are, are set up to really protect the people that are working with their hands or selling materials. And you want to be very, very careful that if you owe somebody some money that you get it cleared up or you can end up having your property eventually sold for the, to pay off that bill for the price of materials. Uh, we also talked about some other kinds of liens that you may have, tax liens, uh, special assessments, and then we talked about a lot of other kinds of liens and judgments you may have on the property that you may want to go back. I'm looking at the time. We kind of need to move on. Um, you also had other kinds of liens that you may have that are not monetary, but they're physical. They physically affect your use of the property. The example I like to use in this case is that if you drive down a brand-new subdivision or even an older subdivision, you will probably see sitting on the sides of either driveways or up front, somewhere on that property that you can see from the street, such things as electrical transformers, cable boxes, telephone boxes. There might be underground things like gas supply lines, things like that. Those are all easements. They're utility easements. What that means is that they physically prevent you from doing something on that property. So, for example, if you have a transformer, sitting on the left side of your driveway. That means you cannot buy the property and dig up that transformer and throw it away and put some flowers there. You can't do that. In fact, you may be required to keep that area clear so that the utility company could get in there and make repairs. Same thing like gas lines. You may find out that you have an easement across the back of your line for gas or water, which means that you can't just go in and dig a pool in the backyard. You're going to have to have the utility company and pay for having them move those lines. So it's something you want to be aware of. 
where do you find out a lot of that? When you open it, when you get ready to buy a piece of property, one of the things that will happen is you'll, when you're working with the escrow company, they'll order something called a preliminary title report or a preliminary report, and it will list those easements, judgments, tax liens, and all of that on the property. And that's something that you, your, you and your buyers are going to want to read and sign off and understand, and also the seller is going to want to be aware of it. Okay, so we talked about all of those things. And, again, I would recommend you go back. If you have any questions, watch the video and read the chapter. And then I think from chapter chapter 3, I think we then finally went to chapter 14. So we went, just so you know, we had chapter 1, chapter 2. Then we went to chapter 6. Then we came back to chapter 3. And now we're going to chapter 14. And this is the one that I mentioned to you when we were doing it was the idea in mind that what we want to do is that at this point you're probably, the reason why I put this in this order is at this point you're probably thinking to yourself, well, what are the requirements for me to get a real estate license? What do I really have to do? I think during this time I probably also brought up the website for the uh, California Department of Real Estate and showed you how you can do all of this stuff online. But the big thing is, and I'm going to emphasize a few things here. First of all, we talked about the fact, which is most important, is who must have a real estate license? Who must have one? And the chapter went into a lot of discussion about this. This is very, very important and why most people get themselves in a lot of trouble. And the reason why is because they do things that require a license. And some of the examples I like to use where people can get themselves in trouble is that you're, say, for example, you may have a mother, a mom, that's selling real estate and is doing very, very well. In fact, she's doing so well that she's gotten so busy that she's the paperwork and the day-to-day -day activities of administering that paperwork and keeping things up to date is just preventing her business from growing. And it's driving her nuts. And she may even be the kind of person that wants to be out talking to people and showing homes and not doing paperwork. And you might be their son or their daughter. And you might be going to college and turn around and say something like, well, you know what, I'll help you out, Mom, but I want you to pay, pay me some money. And she'll say, I'm more than happy to do that. So you may start out with something very simple, such as just maybe making file folders on the houses, maybe making up flyers for the houses when they're for sale. Maybe you go out and sit there when your mom is holding the open house on a weekend. You might be putting some things in the multiple listing systems, such as listings or pulling up data. Or you may be making some contacts with the, with the termite guy to make sure he shows up at the place or even meeting the termite guy to show him, you know, let him into the house to do the inspections. The issue is, is that there's a certain point in which you start to cross the line, and I'll give you an example of that. If you happen to be sitting in an open house on a weekend and, you know, you went there and you opened the house up and you put the sign out and you put the flyers out and all of a sudden you got a call from your mom and said, listen, I'll, I'll be there in a half hour. And then all of a sudden clients walked in or people walked in to look at it and you start giving them advice and showing them other properties for sale and helping them choose properties, you have now crossed the line. You now are doing something that requires a real estate license. That's why you've got to be very careful of that. And, and it's essentially anything that you do, such as trying to help find listings and, and soliciting listings or showing people property or anything along that as the book talks about, you have to have a real estate license. So in the case of you were working with your mom or dad doing something like that, you would want to probably get to the point and say, you know what, I'm starting to really get in the real estate business. 
I think I may need to take some real estate classes, take the exam, and pass the exam and be a licensed agent. And that way I don't have to worry about it at all. I can just work with my mom or dad or father, uncle, brother, sister, or whatever, and help them out and don't have to worry about getting in trouble for doing something that requires a real estate license. I'll just get one. Very, very important. So anyway, we went through all of the reasons why you have to have it. We talked about the difference between a short-term or a, an 18-month license. Remember that in order, when you get a real estate license, you can take the exam as soon as you enrolled in this course. You cannot apply for the, for the actual license until you're completed. If you take just real estate principles, that allows you to get a real estate license, but the license only lasts for 18 months. At the end of that 18 months, if you have not taken two additional courses, one of them is mandatory called real estate practice, and one additional course such as real estate finance, economics, computer applications in real estate, real estate appraisal, if you haven't taken one of that group of courses that they show you in the book, your license vaporizes. Okay. So what you want to think about is that as soon as you take this and get a license, you want to take those additional classes so your license becomes a four-year license. So we talked about that. We also talked about the fact of uh, uh, during that time I showed you how to log on and how to set up an account so you had e-licensing available to you and where you could take your exam, start thinking about when you want to take it and at what location so you can start planning for it. So we talked about the salesperson's license. We also talked about something called obtaining a broker's license and those particular courses that are required, college-level courses that are required and experience. And remember, I also said during that time that in order for you to get a broker's license, you have to have at least a bare minimum of two years of full-time sales experience. Now, you want to kind of put that in your mind and remember that because there's some ways that you can take care of some of those requirements. So if this is talking about somebody that maybe has a high school education or an education up to the point of maybe uh, community college but hasn't gotten a degree. If you, if you're, and you're selling and you, and you want to get a, a broker's license, you have to have two years of full-time experience that's signed, documented by the broker you work for. One of those years can be taken care of if you have an associate's degree in anything. It doesn't have to be real estate. It can be anything. Another year or both two years can be taken care of if you have a bachelor's degree or above in any kind of discipline, nursing, biology, physiology, chemistry, whatever it happens to be, computer science, business, doesn't make any difference. That'll satisfy the two years of business. With that and the additional education requirements, you can get a four-year four broker's license. One thing I do emphasize, though, having the license and having just that academic knowledge by no means sets you so that you're ready to go ahead and sell real estate and provide professional advice. What you really need to do is either uh, work underneath a broker for a few, a couple of years where they're mentoring you or showing you what to do. And one of the ways that you can start out by gaining some of that experience is by taking that wonderful internship program that we have here at the college where you're actually assigned to a real estate office broker, go out on home tours and start that, gaining that knowledge and that experience. As I've mentioned before, just by taking these courses is like, and then trying to go out and practice without anybody assisting you at all, no kind of guidance whatsoever, would be like as if I was going to go ahead and if this class was about how to fly airplanes, and I talked about all of the different kinds of flight controls and landing gear and flaps and everything else, but never took you out to the airplane. But at the end of the class, I said, oh, by the way, here's the key, keys to the airplane. 
go out, put your family in it, and fly them to San Francisco, you'd go, well, wait a minute here. I think, uh, I think I need somebody to show me how to do this. And that's what I'm talking about. You're going to need some practical, hands-on experience working underneath the guidance of a, of a good, good, solid real estate broker before you're going to venture out on your own. Uh, so we talked about that. We also talked about continuing education requirements. And we said the fact that remember that uh, this is different than the four-year, cl- uh, the uh, three-unit classes. These are classes that are required for you to go and sit in a classroom, put the 45 hours sitting in the chair, attending the lectures, doing whatever is required of that course. There's a lot of ways that you can satisfy this. And normally, the, not normally, but these courses are required for you to renew your license after four years. And where you can find out what's available and how to take them is once you become a real estate agent, you're typically going to join something like Sacramento Association of Realtors or Placer County Association of Realtors or El Dorado County Association of Realtors. And they all have classes that they sponsor by people that come in and provide that kind of training. And usually, if you look at the four years you have to do it and you start right away, you can take a lot of classes that are interesting to you, that are not high-priced, and you feel that are really valuable. And they can range from anything with how to fill out or the, the legal requirements of, uh, of certain contracts, such as a listing agreement, to possibly uh, you know ethics in real estate. There's a wide variety or or maybe tax law or uh, you know a wide variety of topics you can take these classes in that you can feel will help benefit you and your career. Um, the last uh, thing that we talked about was something called business opportunity. I believe that was pretty close to the end. Business opportunity brokerage. Just wanted to mention to you that remember that that's another area that you can kind of specialize in. And uh, that area is where you're going to help people sell their businesses Okay, and it's going to require you selling their personal property along with their real property. So, again, that pretty much is getting close to finishing up uh, this course review. I really emphasize to you that you really need to go and download the study guide. Make sure you look up all the answers. Uh, Make sure you know where you found them. Make sure that when you come, you're well prepared. You're here early ahead of time. You bring your Scantron 882, your number two pencil. And if you do that, you're going to start to realize that you'll be able to come in and bang, knock that exam out in no time at all. And that's the position I would like to have you be in when you get ready to take the uh, California real estate sales or broker's license. You want to be really well prepared by using that kind of methodology. With that, I want to thank you very much for coming, and we will see you back here the next time for show number 12. Thanks a lot.